Hello, and we are literally one day closer to dead. I am literally Dave Beaudry. And I am Jason Bailey. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing great, buddy. I'm glad you're literally talking to me on the literal Skype, and we're literally doing a literal podcast. My thought exactly. You read my mind. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, now that we're well into this already, um, that was a uh, the largest pop we got from the audience last week was, uh, I guess, the, the word Nazism of uh, me absolutely not being able to stand the word literally. So everybody out there popped for it, and it, it was, and I'll tell you, I'm just going to leave it here. One of my uh, people, one of my coworkers... Someone who works for fucking me, probably, if you want to put it that way, walked up to me and said, I'm literally dead the other day. And I, I, this is like maybe two or three days ago. And all I could think about was the fucking show. I was like, I can't just now I wish you were dead, actually. So, um, well, they're one day closer to dead. If we could just uh, disinvent this from our vocabularies, ladies and gentlemen, that would be. That'd just be fantastic. But at any rate, thank you very much because most of the emails we received or text messages or uh, great support for the podcast all started with literally. So thank you very much and uh, fuck you very much. And literally, fuck you, Dr. Cosby, with a rusty pipe. Exactly. Let's shove a few pineapples up his asshole. So, anything else to uh, discuss, Jason, before we get to the main business of the week? Anything exciting happened to you over the last seven days? Well, uh, not really over the last seven days, but there, it, up, the upcoming few days is going to be pretty fantastic. Uh, All right. James and myself are going down to Tennessee to visit the Tooth Fairy. It's Yay! going to be, oh, it's going to be a good time. Uncle Joey is hanging out with uh, with uh, Richie Rich, uh, little uh, Dennis the Menace, James Bailey. It's going to be fantastic. So we have a very, very fun-filled few days ahead of us, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of toy buying in my future. So you, you, you get uh, Joey Owens involved, there's going to be a lot of fanboy purchases happening, and then my son is... This is not going to be a good equation. It's I'm definitely going to take a hit in the wallet, in the bank account for a lot of, I'm sure, plastic toys. So this, is, this isn't good for me other than just reliving my childhood through my son and, and my other son, Joey. So uh, that's going to happen. So we're looking forward to that. And also, well, I'm sure it'll be full of drinking, debauchery, strip clubs, all of that good stuff. No, that's maybe in about... How many more years I got? Maybe in about 11 or 12 more years, and then my son can see that side of me. I'm not sure. Uh, but right now, we're gonna. it's going to be a PG-type visit. We might even hit a little PG-13 up in this, uh, up in this trip, but uh, it is what it is. I also want to say uh, to all you listeners out there, thank you very much for listening to us here at One Day Closer to Dead. Thank you for the feedback, and uh, this is the rankings from last week. Louisville, Kentucky was our number one city in listenership. Thank you for listening, Louisville. Uh, Paris, France, number two. Kansas City, Missouri, number three. Chicago, Illinois, number four. And the good old Los Angeles, California, Number five, thank you very much, a top five list of cities listening to us. We appreciate each and every one of you guys out there. We really do. Indeed. So it was interesting that you just mentioned, um, you know, up, coming up to reliving your childhood, Jason. Obviously, we talk about things like that very frequently on the show. 
But last night, uh, I actually had the chance to go to the Groman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Uh, and for me to go to Hollywood willingly, it has to be for a good cause. And um, a buddy of mine uh, directed a documentary that was premiering there. It was called Rarity, Retro Video Game Collecting in the Modern Era. Now, Jason, I know you are not a video game guy per se, but I think you would actually appreciate this doc because it talked a lot about the concept of nostalgia and how a lot of these people that got into collecting like Nintendo games and Genesis games and, you know, games of that of that ilk in that era, um, how a lot of it, some of them at least, were kind of trying to kind of chase the the excitement that they had uh, from their childhood. So even though the the method of collecting would not necessarily be something you would relate to, I think you would relate to the overall themes of the film. It was very, very well done. I enjoyed it. Congratulations to uh, Edward Payson and his wife, Chelsea. They also have a child coming, so that is awesome. They have many things to be excited about. And I believe it's going to be coming to uh, streaming platforms uh, in the near future. So that is something for the dozens to keep an eye on or keep an eye out for. And uh, I think y'all might enjoy it. That sounds great. Uh, you know, you were speaking of documentaries. Uh, this last week, I sent a couple of you dozens out there. And uh, in particular, I, I sent one to the uh, Dave Beaudry here on the other, the other end of Skype. Uh, that uh, we are definitely always ahead of the curve here on One Day Closer to Dead. Or witches. I don't know. Maybe, maybe both. Or maybe I'm the witch. I'm not, I'm not really sure. And Dave's ahead are, of the curve. You are but, literally a witch, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to go into what I do at midnight, okay, other than my, my Alpha J situation. Um, but I think it was ABC ran a nice little piece on do documentaries or are documentaries influencing the justice system? Hello? This is exactly what we fucking were talking about seven days ago. So I think it was just two or three days after we had that conversation, they ran a piece on it. And it was a lot about what we were talking about is, you know, a lot of uh, trial lawyers and defense lawyers that they, they watch these documentaries to actually prep for their, their, the show that they're going to put on in the courtroom. And I just thought that was amazing that everyone in mainstream media is now latching on the idea that you want to get some shit done, just make a documentary. So uh, pretty interesting that we were talking about the, um, I think it was a surviving R. Kelly uh, documentary last week. And here right. we are, you know, things, things got done all these years later. And a lot of it was because of the powerful testimony in a Hollywood framed up uh, emotionality of, of a documentary that got that done Probably. So just interesting that we once again here at One Day Closer to Dead, your prophets, your gurus, we're, we're ahead of the curve every time. I mean, it is what it is. Well, damn, we're good, Jason. Yeah, I know that. I know that. And by we, I mean me. Hello? Jason, are you there? Well, why don't you just go ahead and be good by your motherfucking self, Dave? Now, hurry up. What are we, what are we talking about today? Let's get into the dumpster fire. The world is a dumpster fire, Jason. I don't know if you knew that. I certainly did. Did you fucking know why? I fucking know why, because it truly fucking is. Indeed. That's why we have the E in explicit, apparently, on Spotify when they're, <laughs> when they're playing not putting, a, 
when they're not cut, when they're not cutting like an hour off of our episodes. Apparently, that was a thing last week. Too. Hey, let me just say this before we jump full into the dumpster. Thank you guys for switching to multiple platforms last week to listen to us. It just, uh, hey, we we love you, Spotify. Thanks for fixing that. Like within a few hours of the problem, but. Uh, yeah, Thirsty Thursday, when people listen to us most of the time, uh, we only had 39 minutes of our, what was it, 75-minute episode uh, on Spotify, and the dozens let us know it insta-motherfucking-matically. And uh, Spotify did fix that within a couple hours of that happening, but uh, it was funny because a lot of y'all out there started to switch to iTunes. And some of you even went back to the host site, Podomatic. Thank you for trying to figure out that that thing and uh, listening to the full show. So thank you very much. But uh, once again, uh, we were fucked by technology. So uh, thank you, Hal, and fuck you, Hal. I'm just going to assume that somehow that was your fault, Jason. I don't know how, but I'm just going to assume that because it amuses me. It's my persona on air that everyone fucking hates that we go after. Somebody's after us and we just keep on, you know, punching back. So it is what it is. Sure, I think I think I think it's the Q people. I think it's of all course. the Q followers, yeah. Or um, what was it or, or the message? It could be the message. It, We're it throwing it be, back to that. Fuck, it could be the entire Chinese government. You never know. All of the above. Mhm. The Chinese message sponsored by the letter Q. Cosby people who knows are there any of those left uh r kelly maybe but anyway the world is a dumpster fire jason because it truly fucking is and when we're talking about dumpster fires we thought about talking about this last week and then decided to give it another seven days and just kind of see how things are going and well (laughs) here we are so we had talked a while ago about at some point kind of evaluating the the state of the union, Jason, of the Joe Biden presidency, and we decided that day might as well be today. And um, so why not? So Joe Biden has been president since January, still never got that uh, $2,000 check, still uh, still owes a couple, uh, couple hundred on that, motherfucker. But... Um, there's a lot to say there, uh, so I wanted to just kind of not go through, like, bullet point, you know, what he's done or what he hasn't done. I think that's just kind of a boring conversation, but just kind of have a general where we're at as far as how we think he is currently governing. Now, let me also set the table with this. I'm pretty sure, Jason, you and I will agree, because we never discussed this ahead of time, but I feel confident in saying that anything that we say here is in no way suggesting that things would be better off if Trump had won the election. I know I am not saying that. I they, if they reheld the election today, I would you know not be thrilled about it, but would still vote Biden in without a second thought compared to the clusterfuck of the previous four years. So this is not a comparison about Biden's presidency to Trump's. At least that's not how I'm looking at it. But I think there is a lot to go into as far as failings that he has had. Uh, he, when, when I say he, I mean his administration, but he's certainly you know the face and voice of it. Um, and there, there's a lot of things that I think bode not well for them in the future. Now, as we discussed, Jason, and there could be, you know, by the time this airs, there could be some kind of breakthrough on this. But they're still trying to get the big infrastructure bill passed. They're still trying to get the human infrastructure bill passed through reconciliation. 
And there's various, you know, they're trying to tie those two bills together. And then others like Mansion and Cinema are like, oh, I don't want to vote for the other one. And blah, 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 fucky, blah. And then there's the debt ceiling that again is coming up because that's, that's the rerun that nobody wants to watch, but it's always on. Um, so let's, let's start there. The debt ceiling is an example. It's a microcosm. It is an example of what I think Biden's biggest failing has been. And that is that he insists on going along with all of these goddamn norms in the government that have basically strangled any sense of progress over the last, you know, multiple decades that he has been in this government. Um, The debt ceiling is an example of that. There are multiple ways the debt ceiling could be remedied without even needing Mitch McConnell's involvement in it. Because, of course, for those that don't know, Republicans are refusing to hold a vote or to agree to raise the debt ceiling, even though it's about debts that were basically incurred under Trump's time in office. But it's it's this political football that gets kicked back and forth every you know couple of years. So Biden doesn't need McConnell to do this. I, I actually looked into it purposely for the purpose of this podcast. If he wanted to, he could have the Treasury mint a trillion-dollar coin and immediately just shift the debt over to another side of the U.S. balance sheet it would not cause any type of inflation or anything. It would simply be a maneuver that is perfectly legal that would eliminate this concern about the debt ceiling and prevent any debt default. And Biden and his uh, and Janet Yellen have said they don't want to do it because, it, you know, it, why, why would we let Republicans off the hook or whatever the fuck? If you're that concerned about the debt ceiling, and you should be because if we default on it, we're fucked, then this is a solution. Take the solution and just get the goddamn job done. Like, people don't give a fuck if Republicans are participating or not. Just fucking get it done and move on with your goddamn day. And then the same thing Biden had also said that, and I'm rambling a little bit, but fuck it, let's let's cut a promo here. Biden had said that he was supporting a $15 minimum wage, and then he didn't push for it in the uh, reconciliation bill, the first reconciliation bill that they, they got through uh, a while back. It was kind of his first major thing of legislation when he first got into into office. They can do reconciliation, I think, a couple a couple times a term or a couple times a year or whatever. So they're working on the second one right now, conceivably. No mention of a $15 minimum wage in that either. And the reason he said the reason was because the Senate parliamentarian, easy for me to say, the Senate parliamentarian had said you couldn't put the $15 minimum wage in. He's the president. He has the ability to overrule the Senate parliamentarian. And he's like, oh, I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. It's not violating your powers in office to do so. My biggest issue with Biden is that he says he supports something and then he will not fight for it. He has been absent through a lot of this, um, you know, stuff going on with mansion and cinema and the infrastructure bill and all of this. Like he hasn't put any real pressure on them, at least not in the last, not up until now. I don't know what he's doing currently. And he's just basically been absent when all of these conversations are going on. Afghanistan, I fully agree we needed to pull out. I give him credit for that and taking the political hit on that. Um, obviously, the way it was done could have been better. There's no one arguing that. But I, I think that's a credit to him that he at least did what no one else was willing to do and got the U.S. out of Afghanistan. Um, now, again, you know, Jason, you and I did a whole episode about how mm-hmm. you know, there's people that we need to take care of in that process and so on and so forth. But those are some of the some of the main broad strokes about the Biden presidency. I think Harris has been not living up to um, 
what she could be as a vice president. She's kind of put her foot in her mouth multiple times in regards to the border issues. And it's like, why would I visit the border? I'll, I'll visit the border later. And she's just really said a lot of stupid shit at times that has not helped her cause. And if she's, if Biden doesn't run for reelection and she ends up trying to take that, I, I don't like her odds winning an election um, in 2024. And I still think they're set to get massacred in the midterms in 2022. Um, that's my quick overview. Jason, your thoughts. Well, what's interesting is I once again want to say, because the first, the first reaction for a lot of people out there politically who like to discuss politics or uh, they say they like to discuss it, but really it's a, they're already debating you is, well, would you have liked it better under Trump? Well, he's, he's better than Trump. Well, Trump's fucking horrible. You know, Trump, remember him? Yes, yes, fucking yes. Okay. So Dave did very well at the beginning saying like, this has, we're not fucking talking about Donald Trump. Okay. Let's put Donald Trump back in the boogeyman box until we have to deal with him again. We're now speaking about the Biden administration. One thing I've always enjoyed about one day closer to dead in our conversations, uh, Dave and myself is that, uh, no matter what political, you know, leanings we might have, nobody is spared from our criticism when it's well-deserved it, you know, in our opinion, which is always right. Um, Joe Biden, uncle Joe, I think that we had high expectations of him, uh, bringing a country together, possibly maybe bringing his Did own party. Know? Now I'm talking about me and some other people on the liberal oh. side. So, oh, okay. If I, if I, you've cut your promo, if you could just sit down for a second. And then the thing is that we had this big idea, like, yes, uncle Joe's coming that I'm not that optimistic anyway, but every time I allow myself to become optimistic, my balls are completely crushed in, in just a few months. And I realize no, I should just remain a cynical bastard. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't really seem to have the moxie to get the job done in the capacity. I thought he could, um, there is a lot of contradictions that he has said, uh, and a lot of misunderstanding that I myself sometimes don't even know where his administration stands on shit. I don't. Okay. And I follow this stuff as far as like the, uh, the COVID vaccinations. Do we need a booster? Do we not need a booster? People over 65 give, are we listening to the CDC? Are we listening to the world, you know, the world health organization? Who the fuck are we listening to? Who's taking charge here? What the fuck is president Biden is now in contradiction with this person. Now he's in contradiction with that person. That was an interesting, just debacle to find out what the fuck is going on with the fucking booster thing here, folks. Okay. That's one, but the real issue for me and talking about Joe Biden, you know, and his, we're coming, I, I think we're, aren't we fucking close to his first hundred days? Like, isn't uh, probably. it? Probably. I think it's, be. yeah, I think it's not that far from now, maybe a week or so. I'm not really sure, but I know it's very close is the fact is that this, in my opinion, has not gone well. It has not gone well at all. And the only thing that you can say, well, he was better than the alternative. Yes, he was. But I mean, you could say that about a goddamn fifth grader that had no political experience. Um, going back to the previous uh, presidential election. Do I like Hillary Clinton? No. Do I think she's a political piece of shit? Yes. Would I have voted for her? I did. Yes, I did. Cause she would have run the government better. So I, this is Question. sort of how I feel about Joe Biden as well. Yes. Question for you, Jason, just while we're on that subject, cause I, th this first, this just occurred to me now. And I honestly, 
I'm not sure how I would lean on it because I haven't given it thought yet, but you might have a, an opinion one way or the other. If your choice now, well, now or, you know, at the start of the, the Biden administration, if you had to choose between Biden or Hillary Clinton, which one would you go with? Biden. Yeah, I figured myself too, I think. Yeah, Biden. So the thing is that, uh, yes, I'm coming down harsh right now on on Joe Biden because it's a, it's a difference of expectations and opportunities and versus what's happening. And like I said, Uncle Joe may pull a rabbit out of his fucking hat by the end of this year or maybe the the, the end of, you know, basically his first four years in presidency. If, I, if he I, pulls off this dual infrastructure thing, then that would be a monstrous achievement for his administration and everybody involved. But right now, it just seems like it's being held hostage by Joe Manchin, and Biden doesn't want to fight him publicly on it, which I think is ridiculous. Me too. You're the president of the United States. I mean, flex the muscle, dude. We've certainly seen it done in the past. Goddamn. So uh, the deal is that when I was um, watching and and still am the Afghanistan fiasco, uh, just completely de-evolve and watching interviews with Joe Biden and, and him saying that, no, this is, this is the time frame. This is what we're set on. This is when we're leaving. It had to be done, you know, blah, blah. He was, he was really trying to simplify it at the beginning, even while, you know, Rome was burning, you know, he's, he's fucking playing on like nothing's going on. And it was a real, real big letdown for me. It's a letdown for the entire world. And I believe that in when re-election time comes up, uh, this is definitely going to be held over his head, and, oh, they're yeah. go- and they're going to look at it because this is something that's visceral. Uh, you will be able to see it uh, unfold. His generals just to what went to Congress this last week, and and said like, "There's no other way to put this. The enemy is now in control of where we were. There's no political." Uh, positivity swing here. I can't make this sound any other way. The motherfuckers we were fighting are now completely in control of the place that we never wanted them to have control of for the last 20 years. And we're, they're going to be able in three, you know, three and a half years from now, be able to show the climate of Afghanistan. What has happened? What's the rights of women? How many atrocities have been going on over there? And it's going Very, to come back and bite him in the ass, particularly when there is an absolute contradiction now where there is one general in particular. I, I don't think it was Millie. It was one of the others were said that he absolutely told the president, recommended that they keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan until every one of their Af- Afghani allies were withdrawn. Okay. And President Biden said, no, no, no one ever said that. Now he's at one point he said, well, they were conflicted. So when the Republican uh, congressman don't know who, who he was, but he actually asked me, he said, is the, does the pre- is the president basically lying or does he not remember which, which which is which and you know then the the military leadership was like well it's an inappropriate question 
I honestly have to say, that's not a fucking inappropriate question. That's a highly appropriate question. It's an appropriate question, but it's one that the general wouldn't be able to answer as far as like he wouldn't be able to say what Biden does or doesn't legitimately remember. But the one thing the general does remember is saying, hey, yes, I I told him we need to keep 2,500 troops until this is done. Another general said there never should have been a date given. There should have been basically metrics or, or standards of this is how many people are out. This is what's been done before we pull out. There shouldn't have been a date. There should have been objectives. And that was not how, how it was done. And in a military operation, yes, you're not going for a fucking date. You're going for an objective. So that date to get it done before September 11th was completely political optics. It was just optics for political fucking reasons. So that 20 years after 9-11 happened, Joe Biden can stand up and go, and we've withdrawn from that that conflict, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's all it was. It was to make sure when he gave a speech at a podium on 9-11, the American troops were out. No matter what. No matter fucking what. And that is not the way to run it. So the contradictions of the Biden you know, administration and Joe Biden himself, on my end, you know, you're talking about debt ceiling, infrastructure, and absolutely, absolutely, I get that. But for me, the shit that affected me highly was the Afghanistan pullout, okay? The, I don't know if it's just inadequacies on the, the way he communicates or the what he's getting through his head, but the contradictions on how we should be combating COVID on a day-to-day basis when it's the CDC, the World Health Organization, and himself, the administration cannot get on the same fucking page. These have been huge deals. The immigration situation has been a huge fucking deal where it looked like, yeah, we're accepting everyone. No, get the fuck out. Too many of y'all. Well, maybe this is bad optics. Let's try to get you back in. Pick a fucking plan. Pick a fucking plan, Joe. And you're right, Kamala Harris. What the fuck's she doing? What is she doing? I, at one point in time, Dave, I thought, great choice. Then she was so quiet through so many fucking parts of this, this rain so far that she could have stood up and said something, done something, gone somewhere, spoke to someone that I thought they must be keeping her in the bullpen. Like, don't say fucking anything. Don't do anything controversial in case, you know, Joe dies over here before four years, highly probable, or he doesn't get, you know, he, no one wants him. We can, we can run with you instead. Don't get yourself in political hot water by not doing anything. Too late. Exactly. Now she's stepped up and people, I mean, I've seen hardcore CNN watching liberal motherfuckers go, what the fuck is she doing? They're all just like looking around like, what was all this promise for? And, you know, I'm not saying that she's, you know, the, the, the liberal Sarah Palin here or whatever, but it's, it's, it really is starting to be like, was this all fucking optics to have this woman um, here on this ticket? And not, I'm not trying to, br- you know, bring up woke culture that this is, but honestly, sometimes I just kind of shake my head like, mm, okay. We see what's happening here. So she's either got to step up and start being a part of the solution uh, real quick and actually being that counterpart to Joe that Joe was to President Obama. He was highly influential and he and he was always effective, at least in the roles that he was given. And she needs to do the same. Uh, so at any rate, it's to me, I hope that this all gets worked out. I really do. But at the same time, right now, there's a lot of just head shaking when I watch the news and I watch these interviews and, and the thus far what Joe Biden has 
not done, quite frankly. Well, I'd like to go back to Afghanistan for a second, just in the yeah. sense of as a topic, not uh, not a, not saying we should go back to the country, <clears throat> but. Um, the, the thing that bothers me, too, is something you mentioned a few minutes ago where, you know, when it comes time for either the midterms, because it could be very effective then or also, you know, in the next presidential election where Republicans can play a couple of clips. One, they'll they'll have the clip of Biden saying, well, this isn't going to be like Vietnam. Um, I think that was a major fucking gaffe because, I mean, within days, you know, the basically the Afghan government had fallen. But uh, so that was that was not a good look on his part. But then also what bothers me, too, is, you know, you're going to have whatever the Republican candidates are for whatever office talking about Afghanistan and talking about women's rights and, and all of that. But it'll be so fucking cynical because I don't think for the most part, I can't you know speak to all individuals. I don't like speaking in absolutes, but for the most part, as a party, like the Republicans don't give a shit. Uh, like it's nothing they legitimately for the most part care about. They're just going to play that political card. And I just think that's so incredibly cynical. And I'm not saying the Democrats are much better in that regard. Um, you know, if at all, but it, it bothers me that a very real problem, immigration is another one. Like for example, the, um, you know, people that have been abused at the border, um, you know, where that gets played as like a, a card or like a gotcha moment or whatever, when it's it's really just making a mockery out of real people's pain for for self gain, and that's politics in general. That's not specifically the GOP. Um, you know, I said that that both parties are guilty of that. But I really see Afghanistan being played very cynically in that in that form and fashion. It will be. Well, I mean, that's politics. They're just fucking dirty on both ends. I mean, I think that the Democrats were handed. Just a wonderful fucking Easter egg uh, when they were running against Donald Trump because he was such a piece of shit legitimately that they didn't have to make that much up. But most of the time in politics, you take this is how you win. You know, Roger Stone surely invented it back in the fucking day and, and advised every president since or anyone that he was on their political committee to, for election or re-election. You find some nugget of negativity and there will be we all have failings so every administration so every politician is going to have failings you absolutely magnify that you turn it into the worst thing that ever happened with a lot of emotionality you put it in front of everybody's eyes you've got your people who are the inside that you pay off inside newspapers inside media and definitely political hit ads okay and then you take them down so when you're looking at these things happen in real time and, you know, I associate myself uh, being liberal and being part of the Democratic Party, you you see it. You already start to see like, OK, well, this this is this is fucking bad. This is fucking bad. Well, this is fucking bad, too. And a lot of it. I mean, the thing is, with uh, with the previous piece of shit in office, there was just a, it almost seemed like um, an aggressive ignorance uh, on his part to be right an egomaniacal human that would just press on with whatever bullshit fantasy he had in his head of both himself and and the and the craziness that he was espousing with and Joe the power Biden, of the presidency as well well yeah and he, he but that was his bully pulpit from on high but with joe sometimes you sit there go i'm not even sure if he knows 
what he thinks he knows. And that's what's really sad about it is I know that he's inside Joe Biden's a good man. I think that he means well. But a lot of people have always said this encompasses the Democratic Party. The Democrats is that they're really good people. They fight for the future. They fight for the rights of the little man, the everyman, the common man. But at, uh, by the same token, they can't get shit done. And, I and, and it's just one of those things where I don't say I hold that belief, but I've heard it my whole fucking life by multiple people. I would disagree with that to a degree. I would say a lot of times they don't fight for these things. They just give lip service to it. But when it comes time to actually facilitating an actual change, they come up with every fucking excuse in the book to not do it. An example of that is when Biden's presidency first started, all eyes were on Georgia. They needed to win the Georgia runoffs if they were going to have the House, and or excuse me, they already had the House, but if they were going to get the uh, the Senate. They won both of those races and by all accounts, they were not, ex- they being the Democratic Party and, and the Biden administration, were not expecting that. So they did not have a plan in place on how they proceed when that happened. Like, right. And they have had the House and they have had the Senate the entire time, and they are still just blaming McConnell and just not getting shit done, even when he has political tools at his disposal that would let him go about getting things done. So I disagree that they they fight for the little man. I mean, sometimes they do. They some sometimes certainly more than the GOP, but more doesn't mean much when the other is zero. Um, two times zero is zero. But I think they just give lip service. But when it comes to actually fighting for it, Biden said he supported a fifteen dollar minimum wage. He caved on it immediately. So you don't get to say you believe in it if you don't fight for it. And I don't see him fighting for much. Nope. No, I don't either. It's. Uh, We'll, we'll see where this goes. Uh, this is just sort of a State of the Union address here at One Day Closer to Dead from the Biden administration, the, the Biden presidency, and, and see where all of this really does go. He, he seems to have his mind and his, the, his fingers in a lot of fucking pies all over. And uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of progressives, social, won't say socialism, but social, uh, some people say radicalism going on, which is whatever. I think that we will have to see where it all fucking lands. I really, I don't know. I'm not happy with where we're at, but at the same time, it's, it doesn't mean that that's, this is all where this is going to this is going to stay, but it will be very interesting. And as far as, uh, you know, like a report card goes here, I don't, it certainly isn't even a B. You're just like, what the fuck is going on here? So I hope that they get their shit together and, and, uh, real soon. But like I said, it will even, cause I don't forget these things. I think if you've listened to the nine 11 episode, you know, this about me is I will not forget that how how we left Afghanistan and how we left those people that that worked with us for us fought with us fought for us and we protected them and we also were trying to give them this new way of life uh, that they had not had for a lot of people who had not had it ever before and to fill them with hope and give them dreams and desires and education and then just go yeah you're on your own knowing damn well they're fucked they're absolutely fucked. A whole generation of Afghans are fucked. Not the uh, first time we did it. We did it in no. Syria not that long ago either. Yeah, and it's just really, that's the one that haunt, that I know is going to haunt me 
forever, where you've got people in the European community like saying, can you come back? Could, could you maybe go back now and help? And they're like, no, nah, it's over. It's all fucking over. It all got messy and terrible and it's over. And, you know, there's somebody somewhere is saying right now, I'm sure in Washington or in a newspaper column that blood is all over by Joe Biden's hands. Uh, and, you know, when it comes time for the midterms and his reelection, that shit will definitely be drawn up. I think more than even the debt ceiling, I think more than even possibly infrastructure because it's a visceral uh, failure on on the Biden administration's part. Well, it depends. If if we actually default on the debt, that'll be a totally different conversation because then the entire economy will crash and fucking burn. So that is a whole nother thing. Right now, I think it's just a lot of posturing and they'll probably come up with some last minute deal to, to you know, like they always seem to. Um, in which case, I agree that that won't be the dominant, you know, discussion come re-election time. But I mean, if if by chance something happens to where they default, that's that's going to be that's going to be the defining mark of his presidency, I believe. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up before we move on. Is also throughout this entire process, meaning uh, Biden's presidency, Republicans have been very aggressively pushing. Uh, voting reform in various states to try to make sure that they, by hook, crook, or any way possible, win elections and make it harder for people to vote. Biden, I don't think, has taken nearly as hard a stance on that as he should have. That should have been one of his first top priorities is very publicly fighting that, even just using the, the power of the pulpit to speak out more openly about which states are doing what and why that matters. And, and again, he's just been absent. I don't, I don't know if he's just thinking each state will take care of it themselves or whatever, but you add all that up, man. And I mean, yeah. they're just going to get fucking hammered at the next major election cycle. And it just seems like they're asleep at the wheel. Yeah, that's how I feel too. You're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot of, I, you know, he gives this gentle, I agree with this. I don't agree with that. We should do, but there, there is not that I, it's, it's weird because being a, yeah, quasi fan of Joe Biden all these fucking decades. You know, I'm not saying that he should have got the presidency 20 years ago or some shit, but you could definitely see a different fucking Joe Biden than even when he was a vice president. Man, we're getting on a rant now. But it was like when Joe Biden was the was Obama's vice president, I would always be like, God damn, Joe Biden's got balls. He got fucking balls. He he can he can fight. Like, and you knew he could fucking fight. And he was a tried and true politician he is i mean legitimately come i mean a complete politician where he knows how to play that fucking game over decades long um relationships he's built and patting people on the back and fucking people over i mean he's a fucking politician period i think you know obama was an intellectual leader but joe biden's a fucking you know roll up your sleeves and beat the fuck out of someone politician and it's just like sort of i hate to say it the fight's gone by the time he won the presidency is a little too fucking late just in the four years when when uh son of a bitch shithead trump was the president there was obviously, and they would point to it in a very obviously disparaging way when they were doing all the Trump rallies, the Hitler youth thing going on, where what's going on with Joe? What's going on with Sleepy Joe? Blah, blah, blah. And, and, but something very obviously has gone on with Joe because in the four years that he you know, was not the vice president, now he's the, now he's the president, it's, you can see 
Something's happened. There's just, and it's just fucking age, dude. It is fucking age. It calms us all the fuck down. And I think that there's a lot of lip service that he can still give when they get him up and running. But as far as that, that, you know, little salty bastard Joe Biden getting off the train and coming to Washington to whip someone's ass, that shit's gone. It's fucking gone. So I don't know. I think there needs to be a lot harder tone in in his speech delivery and just his general purpose up there. If he wants to get anything done, it's like someone needs to tap him on the shoulder and go, hey, Mr. President, you're the fucking president. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea, but it's time to get busy, Joe. It's time to get a little more aggressive and fight for the things that you said you were going to fight for, not just talk about in an administrative way. Dozens, what do you think about all this? Jason, if only there was a way for the dozens to communicate with us what their thoughts are on the things that we have discussed thus far this week. Where, If only there was a way for them to do that. There is. It's this wonderful email address that uh, has basically become a newspaper for myself and, and Dave. You send us so many articles from all over the world there of things we need to be talking about. Anyway, you probably already know what I'm getting, re- getting ready to say. It is as follows. Ask Dave and Jason at ProtonMail.com. Miss well, God damn it. Fuck you, Dr. Cosby. Beautiful. I think that might have been one of your best deliveries yet, Jason. Credit where it's due. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, second topic of the week apparently is a request from one of the dozens, speaking of of feedback. So, Jason, Mm -hmm. take it away. All right. Because childhood is dead. Sorry, let me throw that in there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, childhood is dead. Or the old man rant. Something's coming up, folks. It's always always a good second topic because it, it deals with your heroes, Dave and Jason, very intimately. I love being intimate. Here we go. It's Dear Dave and Jason. This morning, as I was driving to work, I was reminded of one of my very favorite episodes of your podcast from last year. There was a cast back in March 2020 where Jason and Dave talked about their favorite guilty pleasure movies. Although Dave said that he's, quote, never embarrassed or feels, quote, guilty about any movie i roll he did reframe it as a movie that he was not necessarily meant to be the main demographic for so i was wondering what are you guys's favorite guilty pleasure songs are or at least ones that maybe people would not expect to be your jam as you listen to in the car or whatnot just a suggestion as an alternative to the insanely red-hot dumpster fires you have been covering lately. Big hugs for Dave. Yours truly, Dr. Eddie Gizmo Gomez. Thank you very much, and fuck you very much, Dr. Eddie Gizmo Gomez. That was your number one fan, Dave, right there. And by the way, he put in eye roll, not me. So more than than one of us thinks that the the big, tough Dave never surprised by anything, never feels guilty about everything, just perfect Dave Beaudry, there should be an eye roll. So thank you very much for that, Dr. Eddie. I I don't believe Eddie would be capable of such... um, Disrespect? Salty disrespect. I believe that totally is a Jason Bailey influence. Mm-hmm. And, and I guarantee you. Edi- you taking editorial control over the good words that have come out of <laughs> Dr. Gomez's mouth. That's, that's right. what I believe. <clears throat> well, it was an interesting topic because I'll tell you, we did cover 
guilty pleasure movies. And that goes to show you, I can't remember shit from Shinola when it comes to the time frame of the show, because I thought that was like six months ago. Oh, I Apparently can never was... tell you when something was. <laughs> yeah. Apparently it was March of 2020. So, well, uh, it was a simpler time back then, it, Jason. It was. It, was bef- I mean, it would have been about around the time that we just delved the fuck into cotton candy. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a good one. I remember mine distinctly. Uh, people, the feedback, I, I absolutely love the film Magic Mike. Love it. And right. uh, that got Nick me Nick and some, Nora's uh, Infinite Playlist was one of mine. That's right. Yeah. It, it, but it was awesome. Yeah. Is that uh, Eddie remember that? And at the time, we did get a lot. So at any rate, who, who wants to uh, kick this off? They want to know more about us, uh, Dave, out there. So, Well, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, man. George Michael is that dude had fucking talent. Uh, you know, definitely being a child of the eighties, it's not necessarily a a big surprise per se, but, um, you know, even in his wham days, like that dude could belt and, uh, had a really good voice. His songs are catchy. If that shit comes on, like regardless of what era of George Michael we're talking about, I'll probably pump that shit in the car. Why not? So I'll start with that, Jason. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're right. George Michael is fucking awesome. As a matter of fact, that one year where we lost like everybody where there was not talking about cotton candy, but there was like a year shit. I don't even remember maybe 2016 or something, but there There was was one where the entire Oscar broadcast could have been an in memoriam. Yes. Okay. I think we lost Muhammad Ali that year. George Michael Prince. There was like a bevy of motherfucking heavyweights in the entertainment universe that died. Well, he, out of all of them that passed that year, uh, D- David Bowie died that same year. Out of all of these musicians that were just heavyweights, the one that affected me the most was George Michael. The, the one that I was like, oh, fuck no, was George Michael. And it's because of that. I love George Michael music. As a matter of fact, it has a very special meaning for me is that back when I was up uh, living in New York City and, and me and Kike were first getting to know each other and becoming friends, we would go back to his apartment in Tudor City at night and just talk acting all night long. Talk Marlon Brando films, acting, acting technique. That's all we talked about. And it's how we formed our friendship. He only fucking owned one CD or it was two CDs. It was the best of George Michael. Did it have the we, sax riff on it? Oh, yeah. We played, <laughs> the, we played those CDs just... Back to back to back. This is before streaming, before Napster, before fucking anything. So it means CD a lot to me. my ass. It was an audio cassette, you lying motherfucker. No, this was CD, <laughs> and uh, it was just hysterical because every time I hear George Michael, you know, I'm never going to dance again is one of those that I just, yeah, I'll crank it. And, and, I, and oddly enough, I think of Kike. There's and that wham so, Christmas song that yeah. gets played like nonstop on the radio every year. Oh yeah, absolutely. I gave my heart away this yeah. time. I'm going to give it to someone who, yeah, all that shit. Well, George Michael, when he went, that's a big deal. As a matter of fact, when they did the Freddie Mercury Memorial tribute concert, I think the year after Freddie died, the only motherfucker that could sing in Freddie's octave was George Michael. And it's because he taught himself how to sing when he was a teenager by singing queen music, by, by matching Freddie Mercury's voice perfectly so he they didn't need to change the octaves of the music at all so hey man i applaud your fucking guilty pleasure because to me that is 
that's fucking great. That's not, I'm going to do way better than you. My shit's psycho embarrassing. So on my end, after I got that, I was like, boy, that's fucking good. But we have talked a little bit about my musical preferences in the past. And quite frankly, for all of you that know me and all of you have listened to this podcast, all of the music I listen to is fairly cringeworthy. I mean, it really is. Okay. What am I? Much like your sexual preferences. That's just perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. Go be, be yourselves, people, okay? Absolutely. The, the older 100%. you get, do whatever the fuck you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Sometimes they like to be hurt. This is how it goes. But let me tell you something. The music I listen to is everything that you watch on American Psycho, everything that he, he listens to, I listen to. Huey, oh, Lewis, Huey Lewis in the News, in the news is a badass. Genesis, Phil Collins all the shit from the eighties he listens to, I'm listening to that is basically my playlist. Okay. But there is, I had to pick something because I really wanted to punctuate how cringeworthy my fucking music is as being a white man at 46 years old. I love when this song comes on. I love it. I have to listen to it full blast. There's obviously something very wrong with me and it's Cindy Lauper's girls just want to have fun. I love this song. Well, it's I got a like, WrestleMania connection as well. I know, but I this has nothing to do with it. It's not like I'm I'm somehow role playing as Roddy Piper where I want to like smash the radio. I like want to throw a wig on and fucking dance around like a cheerleader when this thing comes on, like that, Magic Mike. I'm, I'm probably they didn't have, did they have wigs? Well, I know one person that did, Kevin Nash. But let me tell you something. I love this song so much that there's a line that says, I want to be the one who walks in the sun. I fucking love that lyric. It's, I don't know. I love that whole album. She's so unusual. Okay. It's, I think it's better than any individual album that Madonna ever came out with. That album by Cyndi Lauper was She Bop and Time After Time. I fucking love that album. I love it. But Girls Just Want to Have Fun has got to be the one. And I'll tell you another one. Somebody the other day got in my car and saw that on my playlist. Um, what was it? Was it called the Teenage Dream by who is uh, Katy Perry? Katy Perry was playing. They laughed their fucking ass off at me, and I'm like, "What's wrong with this song? I fucking love this song. I get laughed at by all my fucking music to this day." On my workout playlist, I play MC Hammer. Okay, and it is not. Um, can't touch this. It's too legit to quit. I fucking love that song. And I mean, that's the one that pretty much, you know, started his downfall where they all started, all the kids were like too much shit, talking too much shit. And they just, you know, that was sort of the downfall. He started to go down. I love MC Hammer so much. Okay. That I have. At least it's not Millie Vanilli. No, I hate it. I hate Millie Vanilli, but I love MC Hammer so much that I I have a greatest hit CD. Okay. And yes, you have the pants. I did have the pants when I was... I had the Zubaz <laughs> pants that Road Warrior Animal invented. So, you know, basically the same thing. And the thing is that I have actually seen in every fucking commercial out there that's selling like detergent, Cheetos, whatever, them making fun of MC Hammer. And I have... I definitely could be in these commercials. I am that middle-aged white dude that can do all the fucking dancing from all the MC Hammer videos, Okay. I, I so anybody out there that wants to know my guilty pleasures, I think I've I don't know if I could get I don't th- I don't know if there's anything else that's worse than what I've said, but like to this day, I will get ready to do like this huge workout and crank too legit to quit. And the shit is fucking on. 
So, I mean, there you go, bud. You wanted to know, Dr. Eddie, and a lot of you out there loved our guilty pleasures, uh, not just the movies. You liked our Vices one, too, when my Vice was, you know, probably uh, cigars and bourbon and sex and days was chocolate. So Buffalo, um, Buffalo wings, Jason. Don't oh, forget for, Buffalo wings. forgive me. Uh, Dave doesn't get guilty. He has no guilty conscience. But at any rate, that is some of them. Do you, do you have any others before we close this out? Because I love talking. I love talking music, period. Uh, let's see here. I actually, I had a thought in my head and then I kind of lost it because you were talking for such an incredibly long time that I just didn't, uh, didn't hold on to that train of thought. Well, we have to make sure um, they keep listening to the show. I'm sorry. Never mind. What was that? Go go ahead. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I heard you incorrectly. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about, uh, about, um, anything that would like surprise anybody. Um, I always thought the Bengals were a good band, but again, not really guilty pleasure. I mean, there was another another '80s band that was very much like it's kind of tied to nostalgia and like you know, and, and some of those songs are just fucking great. Um, I'm trying. Oh, wait a minute! I can tell you, I can tell you one from back in the day. I don't know if I would listen to it now because it's it's been so long since I've heard it. But as a kid, I was a big fan of uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And obviously that has followed me into adulthood, of course. But do you remember this, Jason, where for a brief time they tried to do a Ninja Turtles live band that yeah. went on tour throughout the... And then you could get their cassette through sure. Pizza Hut, I remember. Sure, I remember that. I used to love that shit. I would, like, blast it, because why not? Like, so I, that that was an old one. I don't know if that would hold up today, because as I said, I haven't listened to it or heard it in a very long time. But uh, that, that would be one I think I would throw out there. Yeah, the dozens are going to fucking send us this music. I can tell already, but... Uh, well, good thing you're the one that checks the email, Jason. <laughs> no, no, I'll have to listen to it. But yeah, that was that's some uh, that's some good stuff. So uh, please, guys, we, we want to hear from you too. We really do. So maybe we can next week talk about some of the dozens guilty pleasure music out there and get some feedback on it. Um, and by the way, I forgot on this feedback. I can't believe I didn't even bring this up is that um, we got some feedback from last week about, you know, all the physical media I bought, uh, Venom, that uh, the first Venom film came out, and I said it sucks. I don't know why I like it, but I do. Sure. Lots of, lots of y'all came out and said same, absolute same. Weird, bizarre, uneven film, and uh, there's something about it that you watch and go, that's terrible. I want to watch that again. Maybe again after that. So something's going on. I don't know what they're putting. Like you somehow are getting crack cocaine through your eyeballs to watch this. But a lot of them said it's the study of duality. And uh, there was some deep feedback on that. Uh, Maybe a likability of, you know, Tom Hardy and also a likability of the Venom character. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's lots of y'all chimed out there too. So we love hearing from you guys and please let us know what your guilty pleasure music is too. We'd love to hear that. I watched a, uh, a B action film earlier in the week that I've, you know, plot wise was nonsensical and probably not a very good film, but I fucking loved it. And I watched shit out of it again. The fight scenes were great because they didn't do that shaky camera shit just to revisit another uh, previous subject. Um, It was it's from a few years ago. It's called Triple Threat and it stars Iko Uwais. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. He's from The Raid, uh, lead actor from from The Raid and The Raid 2. Uh, Tony Jaa. Uh, who's done all sorts of action in films, does his own stunts. Scott Atkins, who's an absolute fucking badass. He was uh, Van Damme's heavy in uh, Expendables 2. Yeah. Is, is one of his big like mainstream projects. Um, uh, Michael Jai White is in it. Um, like 
just great fight scenes, really fun action. Tiger Chen is in it. Like, really enjoyable time. Plot, who gives a fuck? <laughs> Lots of great fight choreography from people that, like, who really are at the best of what they do. So uh, that, that would be, uh, I would put that in kind of a similar similar category. I said I haven't seen Venom, so I don't really have an opinion of it. But the sequel, I know, broke a like, box office record for the pandemic or something. So, yeah. you know, good for them. Yeah. All right, let's uh, wrap up the week, Jason. You want to talk about you want to talk about some Bruno, so let's talk about some Bruno. Yeah, th- this came up. Uh, we had, I think, a lot to speak about last week in the, in the wrestling topic. Uh, the what are you talking about? I don't. We only went for thirty nine minutes. <laughs> well, you're right. We had so little to talk about. Spotify just did us a favor. But uh, no, this this time around is I wanted to do a profile of a couple of wrestlers. And then I came down to tonight just doing a profile of this as almost a response to the plane ride from hell episode. And the thing is that <clears throat> a lot of you had never heard about the plane ride from hell. Um, and the response was, what in the actual fuck? That is disgusting, sleazy. It left you feeling all dirty, okay? So I thought, you know what? So that we actually can keep doing the wrestling topic and talk about these older wrestlers without people just turning off and being like, fuck these guys. They were all, you know, sons of bitches and assholes and just terrible people. We're going to do a profile of Jimmy Snuka. We're now going to talk about Jake the Snake Roberts. Um, No, what I thought we would do is do a little bit of a palate cleanser. And maybe do a life well lived kind of episode that they do on NBC, uh, but it's with a wrestler, and the the one that I know for a fact could maybe cleanse our palate from that nastiness is the great, the one and only, the living legend, the Italian Superman, the Italian strongman, the original Italian stallion, Bruno Sammartino. Bruno Sammartino is, by a lot of wrestling historians, considered the greatest wrestling champion of all time in North American wrestling history because of the length of time that he was at the top between his two reigns. He had two heavyweight championship reigns that, if you combine them together, would last 11 years. You heard that right, let folks. Me, 11 fucking years. Let me, let me also put this in a, in a context as well for those that are not familiar with that era or don't follow pro wrestling. Bruno San Martino was the Hulk Hogan before there was a Hulk Hogan. Not in the sense of persona, not no. in the sense of his, you know, like you know, like Hogan took a lot of things actually from Billy Graham. But, um, but as far as being the dominant box office attraction in pro wrestling, or at least in the markets with which he worked, which was largely New York and you know the the north northeast area. Um, Bruno was the draw, the way that Hogan would be you know, the subsequent decade. That's exactly right. No, he was, he was a huge draw and I'm going to, I'm going to get to that, but that's why so many people just think that he's one of the greatest of all time. But also why I want to talk about him is because when they call him the living legend, that shit is fairly fucking accurate with Bruno. He's he's dead now. So maybe it's true. Well, at the time that he was alive, there was this kind of talked about like this motherfucker is as close as we're going to get to if Superman came and visited our planet. Oh, Bruno was a bad motherfucker. Oh, he was. There is a, I just, I'm going to throw this out while you just reminded me 
There is a internet article out there that you can look up called Bruno Sammartino, one of the baddest mofos ever. I think it's by a website called Chaos and Pain. And Chaos and Pain, they pretty much profile wrestlers, bodybuilders, weightlifters, and, you know, and talk about that kind of genre of old school tough guy. The one they read on Bruno Sammartino is a 10 out of 10 motherfucking stars. It's amazing. So just bringing that up. Yes, he really was a badass motherfucker, but in such a kind, gentle, what's best in man kind of way, like just a good, good man. So I want to bring something up real quick. He was born in what would what you call Abruzzo, Italy. They would say Abruzzi, Italy when he came to America, but it's Abruzzo, Italy. Uh, he was born there in 1935. And then when World War II began uh, and there, the Nazis actually infiltrated parts of Italy on the outskirts, um, the people that were the Italian resistance who didn't want to go along with the Nazi movement or the, Ax the Axis powers, uh, they were fighting hand-to-hand -hand in their villages. One of the villages that did this was, you know, this Abruzzo, Italy, and um, his dad... Uh, Bruno's dad knew that this was happening and tried to get his family out of Italy before Nazism came to power. So he went and moved to the United States of America and he landed in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with the idea to set up a home, get a home life structure, get money coming in. And he went by himself. To by clarify. himself. Bruno was still in Italy along <clears throat> That's with the right. rest of the family. And immigrate over there and get things set up for the family. The problem is World War II bro broke out and the Nazis overtook Italy before this could, before he could get his family out. So Bruno's dad is the United States of America, but his mom and all his, his family is over there in Italy. So they, to escape the Nazis, they, his mom took him and several of her children. I think that he was one of seven kids and went up into the mountains of Abruzzo, Italy to, to kind of hide out from the Nazis that had occupied their homes, literally had gone into people's homes and just said, this is where we're living now. Uh, it was a, a forceful occupation of these, you know, just rural families in the outskirts of Italy. <clears throat> so they would hide up in the mountains with no food, no running water, no amenities, and they were up there for two years. So this little village of resistance went up to the mountains to where the Nazis would not readily come up to. It would not be easily available to them. So they didn't really give a shit. They're like, let them die up there anyway. We don't care. And his mom, Bruno's mom, would go down in the village to pick up supplies Everyone's like, I think once a week and bring them all the way back up the mountain for them. Bruno survived two very, very harsh winters. I don't think all of his siblings did by eating snow and dandelions during the spring. I mean, just barely eating anything. At and one he was point, still a small, he was still a young child at that point. too. That's right. He was, I believe he was between the ages of five and seven years old when this yeah. was happening. I think that's um, right. At one point in time, the Nazis had finally had a fuck enough because they realized that these families were not dying. Uh, they, they, a lot of Italian stubbornness. They weren't going anywhere. And they kept coming down to get supplies by hook or crook. Which was also, dangerous to do. Yes. Too. Also, the Nazis had a uh, special little rule for the, out, the, the communities here in Italy that... For every Nazi soldier that was killed by, Ita by Italian resistance fighters, 
10 people in that village would die. They would kill in response. So if, if one of the Nazis got shot in the head, you know, in the middle of the night by a Nazi, uh, you know, somebody that was hunting them in the Italian resistance, the next morning they would just round up kids, women, didn't matter, old men, didn't fucking care and execute them to say, don't fucking do this again. So this fine, this happened. They knew that these families were hiding up in the mountains and they said, let's go execute them. The Nazis went up this trek, which took nearly, I think, several days to get up, two, three days to get up to the top of the mountains where these families were hiding out, and Bruno's in particular. They lined them up. They started loading their rifles, and unbeknownst to the Nazis, there was two men up there who were resistance fighters with machine guns and mowed them down at the very, very, very final moments before they, the, that uh, Bruno was going to die the siblings that hadn't died through the winter were going to die and his mom. And that's, and they were saved. It's an unbelievable fucking story. It's I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie about that dude yet. Like not a, like a real big budget one, you know? Yeah, no, they've tried. I think multiple of multiple people have tried to make his story, which just gets better as I go. But I mean, this is the beginning of his life. It's unbelievable. I think a lot of it is tied up in some, WWE hands, but whatever. Um, yeah, there you go. So at any rate, World War II finally comes to an end. They're able to go back down to their village, but they want to go to the United States of America for a better life. At this point in time, his dad really has set up a pretty good way of life. He gets all, you know, within a couple years, I think it took about two years to immigrate over his family. By the time Bruno arrives on American shores, he's 15 years old now, okay? And he weighs, and I'm not making this up, 80 pounds. He weighs 80 pounds because of the malnutrition that he had all the years, A, up in the mountains, but B, when he came back to a desolated town in Italy because it was laid waste to the war. The war raged all over Europe and there was nothing left. So it was a community that was just completely laid waste with a lot of malnutrition and disease. So he came over, they put him in high school there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, he was made fun of a lot as being a boy who a could not speak English at all, very well at all. And had to keep learning every single day to understand what people were saying to him. But number two, weighing 80 pounds. So he was picked on massively and he figured out pretty quick that the largest people in the school were the football players and the athletes, the wrestlers, and because they were lifting weights. So that's what Bruno did. So in the first year he was in America, he put on about 20 pounds. Okay, he was still weighed, you know, nothing, like 105 pounds. But after that, he got pretty damn good. They took him to a doctor. Imagine living in this fucking time period. His parents thought he was just going to die, that his, his, his body could not even pick up any kind of nutrition at all. The doctor put him on a prescribed diet of meat and potatoes. Okay, meat and fucking potatoes. So this basically, it's like kind of like when you're watching Captain America, like get that kid a sandwich. That's pretty much what they said about Bruno. Just make him fucking eat all the cows and all the potatoes you can find this kid. He'll be just fine. So that's what they did. He continued to lift weights and got unbelievably strong. By the time he left high school, he's one of the strongest people in his school. He absolutely did not take steroids thought it was crazy, never got involved in any chemical substances at all. And by all research, including my own, because I'm way into this shit, he broke a record, a world record at something like the age of 24 by bench pressing 565 pounds. 
bench pressing 565 pounds. Nobody that they ever had heard of in the United States of America or Eastern Europe had ever even hit the 500 pound mark. It was considered like the sound barrier. A human being just cannot bench past 500 pounds. Well, Bruno just up and fucking broke that goddamn barrier. So people took notice locally, and then he was sought after to become a professional wrestler. He had a lot of trouble at the beginning with promoters because he always did the right thing. He had a very, very strong moral fiber, something that didn't go along so well in the wrestling community. Not then, not now, but I'm telling you, that was Bruno. He lived by a different code of ethics. And by the time that Vince McMahon, well, I guess you would say senior, I'm not trying, I'm trying to get them in your head that it's not Vince McMahon Jr., it's his dad, when he decided to separate from the NWA, which we had covered in Pro Wrestling Part 25, um, they needed a champion. Well, they picked Buddy Rogers because Buddy Rogers was well known and they needed a reputable human to put that belt on. But the idea behind it was always to get this young Italian superhuman strong man to get that belt to him. So I think Buddy only had that belt. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but maybe like something like two to six weeks, like not yeah, very long quick. at all. And they got that belt on Bruno, and that was fucking that. Because uh, Vince McMahon Sr., once again, Vince's dad, knew that the Northeast of America was so predominantly Italian and a lot of his fans were Italian. He said, you put this man who is the strongest human being I've ever seen in my life in front of my Italians out there that watch us and we are going to do big fucking business. Well, he was oh, right. He, he sold out Madison Square Garden. I forget it was like a hundred plus times, I guess. He, he sold it out more than any human beings ever sold out Madison Square Garden. It's the house that Bruno built. And that was it. This this sort of solidified who Bruno San Martino would be. His matches consisted of a lot of brawling, but a lot of uh, feats of strength, too. He was somebody that was believable that he could go against someone like Andre the Giant or Gorilla Monsoon. Even though he was only 5'10", he weighed 270 pounds, and he was a big, he was a burly bear. man. He was a bear of a man. And he could pick these men up and throw them around. He body slammed uh, Haystacks Calhoun. At, and Haystacks Calhoun weighed like 700 fucking pounds. I think he's the heaviest wrestler who ever existed in pro wrestling. So, I mean, these things fucking happen. Bruno was such a good dude that he never, ever dealt with steroids. He didn't like the cussing. He didn't like vulgarity. He didn't really even like gimmicks, to tell you the truth. He kayfabed his way through his entire career, gave a lot of respect to to uh to the entire business. And by the time Vince he McMahon... Was, he was like a Bill Cosby without all the raping. There you go. Yeah, and but and he really didn't do any of the craziness. Um, by the time that he got older in his early 50s and was sort of phased out of, of wrestling, you know, he had dropped it to a superstar Billy Graham on his second reign, and superstar Billy Graham kind of ushered in that whole bigger, stronger, looks like a bodybuilder, you know, gives you sexual innuendos every once in a while in his promos, that whole thing, which Vince Jr. really really liked. Um, Bruno was sort of out of it. He was coaxed back in to try to get his son a career against his will, which never even fucking happened because his son was definitely not his dad. And that was a fiasco. But what it really brought is instead of uh, Bruno Sammartino working for Vince's dad, 
Vince McMahon Sr. He was now working for Vince Jr., who we call Vince McMahon today. And it just did not go well. He started seeing the abundance of drug usage to make wrestlers look like bodybuilders that Vince McMahon so heavily coveted. And at the same time, a lot more, you know, by the time the Attitude Era had come, he had already left wrestling. But he really well, saw think- that coming and fought against Vince McMahon for probably 25 to 30 years publicly on how the WWF and then WWE was just absolutely vulgar, disgusting, drug use. He railed, I don't, people forget this, but Bruno was an advocate for justice to be brought uh, for the, the ring boys, the people that said that they were molested by officials in the WWE. And a lot of people don't even remember that. But My I mean, but is, he did, yeah. Um, am I correct? Also, wasn't there, I believe there was a longstanding lawsuit. Didn't Vince Jr. like fuck him on money or something too, where Bruno had to sue him or some contractual thing where they had a, a dispute? Am I right on that? I think there was a dispute, but it would, that was fairly early on. Yeah. I don't think that was yeah. during the 25 year real no. fight that they had, but there was something where for a second there, this is a little bit behind the scene history. A lot of you marks out there will know that Gorilla Monsoon was part owner of the WWF with uh, Vince McMahon Sr. And uh, that is not well known, but he was looking for partners. Vince McMahon Sr. before the whole idea of selling to his son came up, but it was first offered to Bruno Sammartino. And I think something from that came up. I think there was a uh, some legal dispute on that, but that did get solved uh, before this. But there was a 25-year period where Bruno would go on Larry King Live. He would go on Donahue. He was very outspoken about how professional wrestling you shouldn't bring your kids to anymore. There's no one to look up to. There are no heroes. By the time the, the Attitude Era happened, this era that we, our generation, considers the most ripe for storytelling and the most fruitful and everything, he absolutely thought wrestling had lost their minds. I remember uh, Jim Ross saying, you know, that they, that in, in Bruno's mind, they, they should go back to like burlap sacks for, for tights. Like he said, that's how old-fashioned Bruno is. So it took a lot of years for Vince and Bruno and they, they sort of became estranged and he (laughs) sort of, no, no, they they were were. estranged. They uh, finally got brought back together by my favorite wrestler, triple H who behind the scenes, triple H, I think did a lot of really, really good things in the last 10 years. Uh, One of them was to bring Bruno back into fold, give him credit for being the godfather of for the professional wrestling universe, particularly in WWE and making him part of the hall of fame, which the hall of fame Honestly, it's just a popularity contest that that exists in Vince McMahon's mind. He's the sole person who decides who fucking gets in. A lot of it's for no rhyme or reason at all. So it is a, you know, really Vince McMahon kisses ass club uh, to, to, to tell you the truth. It's but arbitrary, but it means a lot to a lot of those guys. Very, It does. And But the thing is that for Bruno, it meant something different because like Triple H said, he goes, it really doesn't, it was almost on the same level. I mean, it's different because I understand what he means, but they said the same thing about Macho Man. What I'm getting ready to say is it almost isn't a real Hall of Fame if you don't have Bruno Sammartino in it. And that's the absolute truth. The number one first motherfucker, I guess outside of Andre, who should have been in the WWF slash E Hall of Fame. 
is Bruno Sammartino. It just absolutely shouldn't even be a thing without inducting him into it. But the the um, there was just such ill will and bad blood between Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino that wasn't going to happen. Well, Triple H orchestrated that. Listen, we have a drug policy in place. We have better we're not doing all this striptease and vulgarity that you saw in the attitude era and blah blah blah. and finally you know bruno i do have to say it was really cool the last five years of his life um, because he died i believe in 2018 and he was inducted i believe in 2013 well those last five years there was a lot of collaboration with the WWE on different DVD packages, uh, Blu-ray packages. The network had many specials about him. And he was re-educated to a young fan's mind where he was in the in the pantheon of world champions and what he meant to the WWE universe. Because honestly, I think for a lot of young fans who watch wrestling, they can go back as far as maybe Hulk Hogan. And they, they really don't know what existed before there was a Hulk Hogan. And it was really awesome that that last five years... They didn't fuck with Bruno. They gave him his respect and he was able on a huge platform to be reintroduced to fans out there. And at the end of his life, honestly, he you couldn't say that anyone lived it any better. The man was still fucking jacked at 70 years old. He, I mean, still, he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger with an old man's head on it. You know, he just was amazingly in shape. He advocated being healthy your whole life doing the right thing. He was, he was just a pillar of morality in a universe of fucking steroided up carnies. So, you know, my, my wrestling life well lived goes to the living legend, the Italian Superman, the Italian stallion, Bruno Sammartino. And I thought that was a great way to uh, kind of balance <laughs> the idea of what we talked about in the plane ride from hell with what, what someone like, you know, him or, you know, Terry Funk or someone of that nature. Like there are really good people in this industry and he is probably the, the tippity top of all of them. There was one thing you left out. Do you remember who inducted him into the Hall of Fame? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because they were very close friends from his powerlifting days. And what's what's interesting is, speaking of fucking powerlifting, I'll get back to Arnold because I know we got to go here, but I'll tell you something. This is before they even had a sport called powerlifting. This is for his best fucking lifts were a 565 bench. This is Bruno. 625, 625 pound squat and 675 pound deadlift. Now this is pre, he didn't take one fucking steroid. This is unbelievable. Like he was really a superman, but Arnold said he was one of the greatest uh, role models for what you could do as an immigrant coming to the United States and getting that American dream. And that was part of the reason he inducted him too. Absolutely. And that's our show, Jason. Any final thoughts? No, I just want to say a lot of you out there have been introducing us, I've noticed, to other people, and we really appreciate that, you know. So, like I say, if you if you enjoy what we do, what we talk about, who we are, and uh, you really like us, and I think you do out there, please, you know, like I always say, telegram, telephone, and tell a motherfucking friend that we are here, we are here to stay, and uh, we love having each and every one of you dozens listen to us each and every week. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. So for the dozens and dozens of listeners out there, I am literally Dave Beaudry. And I am still your Jason Bailey. Figuratively. And we are one day closer to dead, but that day is not and will not be today. So until next time.
week.